The assigned readings we just heard seem well-matched to our present moment. I've been sitting with them this week, letting them unsettle my relative comfort while sheltering. We'll get to those in a minute. The physical isolation has been a curious experience during this wild time. While I long for actual in-person connection, I can't deny that the quietude has had its upside. For one thing, I'm less distracted. For a couple of weeks, I binge-watched some programs, but that largely gave way to more reading, time with my grandkids, taking hikes, and honest-to-gosh contemplation. It's also been interesting to spend so much time in Melissa's company. We're both working full-time, but as you know, you can Zoom only so many hours in a day before going completely bonkers. We take hikes. She occasionally helps me video things like this message. We have lunch together nearly every day. Once in a while, we take a break working in the garden. It has been marriage 24-7 in a brand spanking new way that we've never experienced before. All in, I'd say we rather like it, which I suppose is good news, given she'll be retiring at the end of June, and we're now discovering what our new marital normal might feel like as the years evolve. Me? I'm in for a longer haul. God willing, and the leadership of the church still satisfied, I have something to offer. I'm feeling a strong tug forward into whatever is coming next for Christ Church. Honestly, I'm feeling sort of re-energized. There is so very much in front of us today. That's partly what I've been contemplating while sheltering. We all know there will be no returning to things as they were. We're in the midst of a major reset as a nation, as a city, as the church capital C, and as Christ Church NYC. Everything is swirling into something different. Politics, work life, leisure, screen time, parenting, education, business, spiritual life, all of it. We all sense this as though we're spinning in Dorothy's tornado that swept us up unawares for a ride to an obscure destination. She wound up in Oz. We're now wondering where we might wind up. For the time being, COVID-19 is still running amok. Though New York now rides the downward track of the infection curve, another 22 states are riding the upward track. All of us not in denial are aware there could be another major surge when the flu season returns. And who knows when and where the economy might finally land. To say things are unsettled understates the case. But like I said, for many, there's been an opportunity for refocusing attention on simple yet important matters while we've been hunkering in our homes. I'm thinking the mental space that has opened up while sheltering is partly responsible for the astonishing tidal force reaction to George Floyd's death. We're in the midst of a major social cultural shift, not unlike the one over gay marriage just a few years ago, hopefully a great awakening. How long has race been simmering in a dark back corner of white consciousness? For decades and decades and decades. And then, while all of us are locked down in pandemic mode, a black man is nonchalantly murdered before our eyes while asking for help. Everyone saw it. Everyone. 
Denial was impossible for those terrible nine minutes with knee on neck, and something happened. A racial splenetic rupture in the body politic, and all of a sudden, Democrats and Republicans and many diverse others climb aboard the Black Lives Matter train because all of a sudden, it's become obviously important, if not for our president. Granted, there's a lot of pent-up physical energy from sheltering in place, but that doesn't account for NASCAR, of all organizations, to ban Confederate flags from all related events and enterprises, for the swift removal of Confederate monuments, for football discovering that kneeling in place was not an act of disrespect but acknowledgement of an ongoing scourge, for long silent white churches and ministers discovering as though for the first time that the Christian faith actually has something important to say about the centrality of justice, like scales falling from eyes long blinkered by historic and systemic racism, and the remarkable public outcry evidenced in protests erupting everywhere throughout the nation, if not the world, continuing to the present moment. Now, we all have our work cut out for us in this. I'm uncomfortable pointing a finger at anyone else, lest the log in my own eye go undiscovered. As I said last week, none of us is immune from the systemic racist structures that permeate our culture. Quite frankly, most of us white folks are deeply ignorant of what black folks experience. That's finally coming into view, even though the truth of it has been there all along. There, there is so much more to be said about this, but that leads me to the scripture we heard several minutes ago. In the gospel lesson, Jesus sends out the disciples across the countryside to proclaim that the kingdom of God was drawing near. And note what this proclamation consisted of. They were to cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. In other words, they were supposed to be useful, compassionate, loving. They were supposed to embody kingdom ethics, values, and justice. In today's vernacular, they were supposed to walk the talk of love and justice. You may know the old aphorism attributed to St. Francis. Go forth and preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. The kingdom was revealed in what the disciples actually did how they gave themselves to others for the sake of the kingdom. Now, St. Francis was not opposed to words, of course, or preaching, but he did care deeply about what following after Jesus actually entailed. That was his powerful charism, embodied love. It had to show up in the lives of Jesus' followers, what they actually did. You're probably familiar with the prayer of St. Francis, while he likely wasn't the author, members of the Franciscan order believe it reliably conveys his sensibility and it has become deeply embedded within much of Western Christianity. Mother Teresa of Calcutta made it part of the morning prayers of the order she founded and told of its importance when receiving the Nobel Peace Prize and asked that it be recited then and there. And Desmond Tutu, also winner of the Peace Prize, for his leadership against apartheid in South Africa, declared the prayer was an integral part of his devotions. Note that these two were deeply invested in justice for the least, the last, and the lost. Now, I don't know the status of your own devotional life, 
Do you have one? Do you have a spiritual practice that keeps you true to the heart of faith? The prayer of St. Francis would be a very good discipline to adopt. Listen as I recite it and consider the implications for yourself. You might do an inventory as in, how am I doing with all of this? Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in dying that we are born again to everlasting life. These are doing things, consistent with life in God's kingdom, consistent with Jesus' life and teaching. It's a contemplative prayer, and if honored with sincere intentionality, changes us from the inside out so that our lives become an ever greater embodiment of the values it treasures. Thus, the outcomes in the form of Mother Teresa and Desmond Tutu. But now here's why this is so important for us today. Forgive me, but we have a hell of a lot of work in front of us, both within and without, within our own inner being, within our church community, within the wider city community, within the national social community that still harbors unjust structures favoring the powerful, the privileged, and those that have plenty already. Living in a democracy assigns responsibilities to us as equal citizens before the law, at least in theory. And we are people whose character is formed after the manner of Jesus' character. That's in part why we all gather in this way. We want to grow into the people God has intended. Isn't that right? If so, it stands to reason then that we will desire public policy that reflects our commitment to justice for all persons, that honors their dignity and their humanity. We will increasingly walk the talk of welcoming God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. By the way, Christ's church has been on this path for decades. That's why we chose the mission to love God and neighbor, believing Christ-like love holds the key to human flourishing. That's why we've invested ourselves in Washington Heights, committing significant time and treasure to help break the back of poverty for people who want the best for their children. This is a work of justice and compassion. Same with our sharing table program. Same with our work in Cartagena, Colombia. These present opportunities for us to put some meat on the bone of loving our neighbors as ourselves and actually learning a thing or two about our neighbors, who they are, what suffering and heartache they endure, as well as what joy they experience. An opportunity to listen hard and to discover how we are bound by a sacred genetics called the image of God, each of us, which leads to the justice of God for everyone. This is our awesome and holy calling, drawing us into the future. And now we begin to see the depth of wisdom in Paul's affirmation that suffering produces endurance 
and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. And that's a very good place to leave it for now in this great hope for our life together in the months and years ahead. Oh my, the things we will see and do.